Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and today, and today I'm really excited about our guest. Uh, we have a returning guest, and just before the podcast, I was mentioning to this author that the topic that we're going to cover is just extremely po- uh, popular in, in good ways and bad ways, and we'll talk about that at length. But um, it's one of our top YouTube videos outside of our regular podcast channels. And so our author was talking about that. We're going to cover, uh, he's the author of The Addiction. Nobody will talk about how my pornography addiction hurt people and destroyed relationships. He's also the co-author of He's a Porn Addict, Now What? An expert and a former addict answers your questions. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Joshua Shea to the podcast. Welcome, Joshua. Thank you very much for having me back. I appreciate it. Sure. Uh, just before we had gotten on, I was talking about our, our regular podcast channels is where most of our audience is, yet on our YouTube channel, the interview that we had with you, it, it's getting a lot of views, and you had a theory about that. So I'd love, to, I'd love for you to share your theory. Yeah, I've done a fair amount of these shows, and a lot of people these days are now putting, even if it's just an audio podcast, putting it up on YouTube. And whether it's audio or video, if somebody in the description or in the name of the show has the word pornography or has the word sex, it gets 10, 20 times more hits than if you just have my name in there. So, you know, obviously people aren't showing up for me. People are showing up for the sex and the porn. Um, we are just, we're just going to throw a message behind it. Yes. It, well, it's good to catch, capture people. I mean, if they're looking for something, it may be one thing, and then when they hear your story, you may actually steer them in another direction. Hope so. Yeah. And the other thing, I don't know if you knew or not, but on, um, I do a lot of digital marketing for, uh, you know, during the day and what have you. And so there's two ways that there, you can market. You could have SEO or you could do PPC, but those in the know have a different definition of PPC. Do you want to know what that is? Yes. Okay. So the original or regular mainstream is um, pay-per-click. And for right. those in the underground, it is porn, pills, and casino because those are the underbelly or the dirty money or the lifeblood of the Internet. Those are the highly searched topics that oh, yeah. people clear their search history for. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, two of, two of the top search engines in the world are porn engines. You know, they, they get more hits than, than Netflix. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So um, take, take us back. You, you had, uh, I mean, we covered up to you writing your first book. And if it were Hollywood or a Hollywood movie, you know, you'd ride off into the sunset and then you'd sit in a rocking chair and that's all we'd hear about. But as you and I were talking about a little bit before, this uh, subject matter is not going away at all. So kind of give us the scoop of of what's happening since we last spoke. Well, um, as you know, I I wrote my first book, which was a uh, memoir that really detailed the last five years of my life, which 
Um, locally, I became a local celebrity, which was fantastic. I had a magazine. I ran a film festival. I became a local politician serving on my city council. But all of these things were created, you know, a crazy amount of stress. I took myself off of my bipolar pills, and then everything just crashed around me. And I ended up uh, talking to a teenage girl in an online chat room, which you, you know, obviously can't do, uh, whether you know she is or not. And got in trouble with the law, um, ended up serving six months in jail. Uh, While I was in jail, um, I decided to write my book because in jail I was meeting these men who, you know, and by this point, it was, it was two years between my arrest and my sentencing. In those two years, I went to alcohol rehab for 10 weeks. I went to porn and sex rehab for seven weeks. I spent hundreds of hours in very deep therapy and reading as much as I could about addiction and really about porn addiction, too. Um, So, you know, when I went to jail, I was the healthiest version of myself I'd ever been. But I met these men who they didn't have the resources to go to the kind of rehabs I did. And, you know, they didn't have the family support and friend support that I did that really helped me get through the difficult time. And these guys who were self-medicating with drugs or who didn't know how to handle conflict well and, and had domestic violence issues again and again, these guys also had a ton of porn issues and a ton of sex issues. And once they learned my story, they would come, you know, often talk to me about this. And I found it fascinating that they were more embarrassed by the fact they looked at too much porn or the fact that they thought they might have a sex addiction issue than they were about the fact that they were heroin addicts or meth heads or that they, you know, slapped their girlfriend around. They could talk about that. They had trouble talking about the sex and porn. And that was kind of the point when I decided I was going to write my book. Like you mentioned, it's called The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. And I kind of thought that would be it. The book came out, and I went on a bunch of podcasts and radio shows, talked about pornography addiction and just how uh, the statistics were really scary. And I kind of felt like I had... uh, in a sort of a way, paid my penance, I'd give it back, I'd put something out there, so maybe the next guy who was a porn addict, where I couldn't find very much to read about, the next guy could find my book, so, you know, I I put some good karma out there. What surprised me was that I started getting a ton of emails um, within the month of my book coming out, and more than half of them were from the wives and girlfriends of porn addicts. And what... I started to, uh, when I started to get these, I started talking to my therapist. I started talking to a couple other therapists who, uh, who I had met. And I actually started talking to some of these women um, online, um, ironically enough, and through email and uh, learning their stories. And it became so clear to me that while the um, wife of a gambling addict doesn't wonder, you know, if she's not enough, and that's why he's at the casino losing their house, or the girlfriend of a heroin addict, you know, she doesn't wonder what she's doing wrong in the bedroom um, to turn him into a heroin addict. The wives and girlfriends of pornography addicts um, very much suffer in a way that the partners of other addicts don't. And most of them suffer from what's called betrayal trauma. Essentially, they believe that they were either dating or married to one guy 
And when it's discovered that they've been leading this other life with pornography, uh, even if it's an addiction, um, they, it, it, it hits them like a shuttle in the head. This is not the guy who they thought they were with. This is a guy who, depending on how they view pornography, um, you know, could have been cheating on them every single night, um, who had this giant secret. And if he has this giant secret, what other giant secrets does he have? And this thing absolutely tears relationships down to their core in a way that um, other addictions don't. So in talking with these women and talking with therapists and just learning more about this, um, I decided that, you know, I, I, I wasn't done and there was something else to do. So um, one of the therapists out of California, his name is Tony Overbay. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, I talked with him a lot about this because it's almost exclusively who he sees in his couple's uh, therapy practice are people who are suffering with pornography uh, and or uh, infidelity issues. And uh, we talked about it at length. And we kept thinking that there was some kind of project we should we should be working on together. And I happened to be in therapy with my own therapist one day and telling her I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I, I knew that there was something in here for partners. And she said that she had just recently had a, a couple of uh, people in who were ma- newly married and the husband had uh, recently cheated and the, the wife was going through betrayal trauma. And she heard from the wife um, something that she had only heard before from drug addicts, alcoholics, these types. The wife barked at her, you don't know how I feel. And Mm. when she tried to talk to the husband, he barked at her, you don't know how I feel. So she said, you know, and when somebody barks that at you, it kind of shuts you down as a therapist because you can't really come back from that. And it's funny because what was happening to me at that point, and, and Tony, when I told him this story, he mentioned that that has happened to him plenty of times. Um, and I found, though, in doing these types of shows, in you know, uh, conversing with people online, I was always afraid to give any real medical advice because I don't have the schooling. I have my experience. I have what I've researched, but I haven't sat with thousands of people. I haven't been in classrooms and learning this kind of stuff. So it dawned on me what we should do. Um, I, I, told, I told Tony, I said, why don't we get 60, 65 of the most frequently asked questions that women have once they discover that their partner is a, a porn addict? And let's answer those. And you'll answer them from the point of view of the expert, the guy who you know, shows up at the office every day and meets with these couples. And I'll answer them from the point of view of the guy who's been through it. And I'm sure our answers will be a little bit different. But what this will give is both sides of the equation. And it will give a fuller picture in a way that's never happened because the only thing that's really out there for the partners of porn addicts who are suffering with this betrayal trauma are books from women who have been through it themselves. And those are a very important resource, but it's one story of one woman. And with this, you know, we basically have the questions that are always asked answered from both sides of the equation the the addict you know me and the expert in tony so thus far it's been out you know at the time that you and i are doing this right now it's been out about 11 12 days and it's doing very well it's being very well received 
uh, not only by females who it's, who it's targeted for, it's being very well received by therapists who are starting to see more and more people come into their practice who are dealing with pornography addiction and are finally admitting it in ways that they haven't had before. Gotcha, gotcha. And it's really interesting, as I was listening to you say that about the 60 to 65 frequently asked questions for partners once they discover their partner has a porn addiction, it made me think of college in my early days of 19... And at that time, a little there? yeah, just a little tad, <laughs> but um, there was an author named E. Lynn Harris, and he has since transitioned, but he had this big storm, you know, called the storm in the relationship community. Um, at the time in college, the, it was about living a secret life. And he was a star athlete. I mean, he, no, he was a regular guy and there was a, a, a football jock. Uh, he was, you know, the the captain of the football team. He had the uh, sorority girl on his arm, you know, had the nice car, nice clothes, all that good stuff. And to the outsider, it was like, wow, this is a man's man, you know, alpha male. And the author of the book was, yeah, on the outside, but on the inside, I'm his secret lover. And so women were, re- were you know, students at the time, and I just remember after the what happened in the book, just a, a quick synopsis was uh, the this, the guy that had written the book in the story, uh, the the football player had uh, died of AIDS, and mm-hmm. so now the woman was like, wow, like you're saying betrayal trauma, you know, all, you're living this secret life. It's bad enough if you were cheating with this other hussy girl, or whatever. But it was another right. guy, and so. All these women were, I mean, since the guy was, uh, had died of AIDS, she went back into the dating world, you know, like three years later. And so she had a different set of questions to ask while she was out in the dating world. And people were, guys were throwing drinks at her, like all these responses that she wasn't expecting. And I think the takeaway was everyone started asking better questions um, when they were considering who their dating partners were. And as you say, the 60 to 65 FAQs, once they discover their partner, I would have to ask, are there signs that they may know about before until, you know, I mean, nothing's perfect and you may not, you may not ever know until something major happens. Is there a way to circumvent that? Well, in a lot of cases, and, and this was my case as well, the answer is actually no because the husband or boyfriend does such a good job of hiding it. Um, Before I ever got married, I was a porn addict for 10, 12 years. I knew how to hide this from everybody. Um, You know, it's one of these things where, you know, somebody, when my wife leaves the house, when she goes to bed at night, you know, if she went off to work, you know, I had my little rituals. I had my little plans. I knew, you know, how to lock doors. I knew how to, you know, uh, you know, where to be. I, it's, it's, it's a whole, you've got a system in place. And if you've been doing this system for 10, 12 years, which is, you know, uh, foolproof 99.9% of the time, you, it, you're not, you're not going to be caught. I mean, that, that's, that's something that when wives are, when wives say, how, how did I not see this? And I think he's a master of deception. He's been doing this for a long time, but he's also an addict. 
And addicts are manipulators. They know how to gaslight you, tell you what you need to hear. Um, They are going to make sure that you have no clue what's going on. And if they sense you have a clue what's going on, they know how to divert things. They know how to make you think that you're the one going crazy. Uh, They know how to control the situation. It's the same thing as if you're a drug addict, an alcoholic, a gambling addict. You know, addicts are master manipulators, and uh, it can't be forgotten that pornography addiction is an addiction. You know, just because you're not putting chemicals into your body or you're not losing thousands of dollars, you know, it is the same thing is still happening in the brain that happens with other addictions. So the same kind of behaviors come out as well. Now, the other thing you mentioned is that therapists, you know, they're happy with your book, and now there's more information where people can access resources. And you're saying that it's the same with porn addiction as it is with drugs and alcohol or chemical addiction. And it made me think of, um, uh, what's his name, the guy from Family Guy. And it was an episode maybe 10, 15 years ago when I used to watch it, and Peg and, and the family was about to go out, and Peter said, how long are you going to be gone? She's like, 10, 20 minutes. She said, is it 10 or 20? And it was the joke of kind of like what you were saying, like, can I do what I need to do while the wife was gone? But it was like, oh, this is what husbands do, or they made light of this isn't really an addiction. Right, exactly. Well, I'll tell you, I uh, I was talking to one woman not too long ago, and she's like, you know, my husband – offered to let me follow him on my phone you know so obviously i know he's not going anywhere and doing anything wrong and it's like the only reason he let you follow him is so he can follow you you know it's it's not that he's bringing women into the house it's not that he's leaving the house and going to you know uh massage parlors or anything like that because the vast majority of men who are porn addicts don't make the move over to acting out with with a woman or acting out uh, sexually hands-on. But being able to track you is just as important. If you're going to the mall, you're going to the market, you know, they can follow you home. They can follow you to the place. They know how much time they have. It's, you know, it's, it's funny because, again, it's one of those things where the husband or the boyfriend knows how to twist it as an addict. You know, they're, they're not looking to uh, go out of the house and deceive you in the way they're thinking of deceiving you. What they're trying to do is just control a situation. And if you're going to be gone for three hours, then that's three hours that they can, you know, uh, exist in their addiction if they choose. If you're only gone for 30 minutes, that's all they have. But they're an addict, so they're going to get their fix, whether they can do it in a 30-minute window or a three-hour window. And when I say to you, honey, why don't you, uh, why don't you, you know, uh, follow me on your phone just in case I am late running home from work or, God forbid, I end up in a ditch or something, and uh, here, and, and uh, I'll follow you back. And she thinks to herself, well, I don't do anything wrong. I'm a good wife. Mm-hmm. Of course he can follow me. And, you know, it's, it's, it's those kinds of things, and those exist day after day after day, and women don't think anything of them because they happen in absolutely healthy relationships all the time. And they help happen for healthy reasons in these relationships all the time. There's probably a group of women sitting around talking about how they follow their men and how their mm-hmm. men follow them. And that's totally cool. My wife and I follow each other and we follow our kids and our kids follow us. You know, total, I think it's totally normal. Um, but 
of course, it can be used, you know, the wrong way. And just like so much else can be used the wrong way. Um, you know, it, it's, I talked to a woman who she checked her husband's phone for pornography after she caught him one time. Well, it turned out he was using her phone for pornography after she went to bed. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's a ballsy move, but it's also the move where if you know that she's going to check your phone, the only thing you have to do is not use your phone. You know, mm-hmm. for, for, the, for the addict, well, there's probably roughly 2 billion other devices out there. That's why when people talk about putting filters on computers or net nanny and these kinds of things, it's like that's, that's a wonderful idea if you can put them on a desert island with only that one device. But mm-hmm. if people want to get at pornography, people are going to get at pornography. If you're going to have any hope to change the addict, um, you first need to shock their system, uh, and that, that can be done with ultimatums, with boundaries. And what you really need them to do is take a long pause and recognize the priorities in their life. Because the thing that a decent relationship has going for it, even if it's got the addiction going on, even if there are some other problems, a decent relationship, the guy can often wake up and see that it's in front of him. Um, And that's what we try to preach in this book. We don't preach stay with the guy. We don't preach leave the guy. What we preach is take a step back and analyze the situation and really figure out what's going on and learn a little bit about addiction and figure out, you know, where he is in the spectrum of addiction, where he is uh, potentially um, in the spectrum of recovery moving forward and make your decisions, you know, smart and informed. Mm-hmm. And, and it also makes me think of uh, with drugs and alcohol that it's equal opportunity addiction, right? You People of all walks of life are affected by this. So I was just wondering for this first uh, half of the conversation, we've been talking about men, how many women have come out or are they still in the closet as to being addicted to porn? Well, uh, there are more and more coming out, and they're actually women are one of the top three groups that are reporting pornography addiction more than ever. Um, a lot of times you'll have uh, addicts in the same house. If you have a female addict, a lot of the time you have a male addict, kind of like the case with, with alcohol or with drugs. And a lot of times if only one person tries to break the addiction and the other decides they want that usually causes an an, uh, eventual breakup of the relationship. But for women um, who are addicts, uh, yeah, it it basically works the same way. The only thing that's really different as far as looking at statistics when it comes to female addicts is that, and I may have shared this on the show last time, that they act out on their addiction far more than men. Only about 15 to 20% of men ever leave the computer screen or leave the magazine or leave the TV screen and actually go act out with a prostitute or have an affair or, or anything like that. The number for women is 80%. Wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, there are a lot of different theories on that, that women need intimacy no matter what. Men don't really 
utilize pornography for intimacy. That's one of the things that women often mistake and partners wonder, you know, why can't he just come be with me? And with, with men, they're not seeking intimacy uh, with their pornography addiction, you know, at all. And the theory is that women may actually be seeking some level of intimacy. The other, another theory that I, you know, have read multiple times is just the simple fact of, you know, the way the animal kingdom works is that any woman can pretty much go out and get laid tonight if she wants. That's not true of any guy. So you just have that hooking up happening that much more because she is succumbing to the, you know, deepest part of her addiction. And if more men actually thought that they could be with somebody else or could be with a, uh, another partner, that those numbers might be higher for the males. So there's still studying going on about that, but I think it's fascinating that the numbers are so different between the two genders as far as acting out beyond the computer screen. Absolutely. And and that brings me to the next question, because if we look at, I mean, you're probably better versed in this as me, but the maturation, if you will, of the industry, right? So before it was, a guy, a girl, and what have you. And then 2019, there's virtual reality and all this other stuff. But the other point of note is you have more women directors. So it's not, I mean, women, you have a, a growing women audience that is not success, uh, you know, they're not, uh, they don't get access to what they were used to where they were turned off by it. It's like women making these type of movies for women. I mean, would that also contribute to... Uh, growing, going down the rabbit I, hole? I, I, I don't think so. I think that's marketing. You know, you, mm. you see these feminist pornography or ethical pornography um, as if it makes it okay to look at that. Um, and, and I'll get back to that in just a second. I think what's happening is that if you look, you talk about the maturation of the industry, look back 20 years before you had the Internet. You know, men had uh, porno bookshops. Men had porno theaters. Uh, the, the local strip club might have, uh, you know, Chippendales in there once a month, but for 30 days of the month, it was women stripping. The industry was just geared towards men. Women didn't have the access women had to, you know, really go looking and they were very much in the minority if they did go looking for some kind of uh, uh, sexual uh, materials um, outside of the house. Now we're all walking around with the greatest pornography computer ever invented in our pockets and our telephones. And that makes access incredibly incredibly easy for everybody now a woman doesn't have to worry that somebody's going to see her sneaking into the adult bookstore or sneaking into the dirty movie theater um, she doesn't have to worry that somebody's going to see her buying a you know dirty magazine at the, at the bookstore um, or at the magazine stand she can just find it on her phone like all of us she can look up you know uh the last two years in a row the number one searched term on Pornhub was pornography for women. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that shows what's happening. Because, and to go, to go back to you know, what I was saying a second ago, I think that you know, feminist porn, porn for women, ethical porn, to me this is all marketing to make it a little bit more palatable maybe to that group that's on the fence and isn't sure they should be doing this and maybe that somehow makes them feel dirty that they're looking at porn and this kind of softens it. But in reality, and... Uh, I, I don't try to fight against the porn industry because that's just a crazy bang your head against the wall exercise um, because we, there's, there's been pornography since you could draw on cave walls, you know, a hundred thousand years ago. It's not going anywhere, but 100% of pornography is objectification of another person, whether it's ethical or feminist or you're rubbing dog crap in their face. It's all objectionable. It's all objectifying another person. And uh, to me, that's why ultimately uh, pornography is wrong. And I, you know, people ask me, are you, am I anti-pornography? I am anti-pornography, but I am not uh, stupid to believe that the industry could be shut down. And honestly, as a civil libertarian, I wouldn't want it shut down because I don't want anybody telling me what to do with my life either. Mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. what we need to do and what, what my job on earth is, is to push that we have the kind of education towards pornography that we have towards all these other addictions. You know, we tell our kids, don't use drugs, don't smoke, you know, make good choices. We're not talking about pornography. If we can just add pornography to those conversations, I think that you'll see the numbers of addicts begin to drop, begin to level off. We'll never not have any. There are plenty of parents who told their kids don't do drugs and they become addicts, but the vast majority don't. And I think that we need to start talking as a society and start uh, really driving home the fact that this needs to be part of the conversation when you're raising kids these days. That's the only day, way you're going to get around it. Uh, I worry that this first generation that grew up on the Internet that are now in that 18 to 30-year-old age group, I don't know what to do about their porn addiction because uh, one out of three men in that age group report that they have a, an issue with pornography, be it just a little bit of the obsession leading all the way up to addiction, but they see something, one out of three men, 18 to 30, see something wrong. I don't quite know how we stop that. The way that we stop that is that they never get there. So we need to start talking to our kids about it. Now, what's your take on, on we were talking about primarily the U.S., Right, and when you're talking about alcohol, at least uh, there are more liberal, if you will, uh, in Europe and other places where kids are. It's not taboo to drink when they're like 15, 16, so they don't abuse it. Whereas it's such a taboo for young people to drink here, and I'm not advocating just just for this conversation that they don't have the they don't seem to go to the extremes that we do in America, and. And it is a puritanical country for the most part, right? And so since it is kept behind walls, there isn't that open dialogue. And do you think that contributes to the abuse? Uh, well, first of all, um, as, a, as a recovering alcoholic, I can tell you that those urban legends about Europe are absolutely incorrect. They actually have higher alcoholic rates than we do. Um, and uh, so 
you know, you, you don't raise somebody to be a smart alcoholic. You just raise them to be an alcoholic. Um, the people who die of alcoholism over there die at younger ages than we do. Um, as far as the puritanical side of things, I think that is absolutely what is stop, stopping us from having a conversation. There are places in the world where they are more, you know, uh, free uh, sexually. Um, there isn't a lot of study in a lot of countries outside of America or outside of the UK. Um, you'll find can- Canadian researchers doing a fair amount. There's some in Germany. But this is one of those wild West frontier kind of things where um, the uh, different organizations that uh, put out uh, uh, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is used by all American uh, uh, mental health um, practitioners, have, they have said that uh, eventually someday – uh, pornography and sex addiction may very likely be in that book as a diagnosable condition, but it's not yet because studying hasn't been done. So, you know, will it be worse in, in some countries and not worse in others? I'm not sure. Um, I think that ultimately it comes down again to having the conversation. We can't talk about sex in this country openly. We can't talk about pornography openly in this country, despite the fact that 80% of guys under 30 uh, look at pornography monthly. It's 65% of guys under 50 years old look at pornography monthly. The numbers are growing all the time for women. Um, the, the numbers I saw recently that blew me away, uh, under 40 years old, married couples, of men have watched pornography in the last six months. 70% of women who are married under 40 years old have. Now, that doesn't say that they're addicts. That just says that they they consume pornography. Now, if we got all of those people together in a room, how many of them do you think would admit to the other one they watch pornography? Or how many would admit to a doctor or somebody interviewing that they watch pornography or, or even among their friends? We cannot talk about pornography in this country, whether it's because it has to do with sex or or naked people or, you know, has to do with people's kinks, Um, whatever it is, it's a giant secret. And if we can't talk about pornography, we're never going to be able to talk about pornography addiction. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, we're talking, I mean, if, if it's, I don't know how to say this, but we're talking guys and girls, like, I guess the net. I don't want to say natural way. I'm putting my foot in my mouth with this question. But uh, are you seeing a growth with uh, alternative uh, groups in that before, you know, it used to be just the heterosexual male, heterosexual female, but now you have um, different groups that are represented. So are you seeing the same level? uh, Was that a nice way to say it? So are you seeing the same level of addiction with with other groups? Um, Well, I'll tell you, there was a... a uh, Pornhub um, and some of the other uh, very, very popular um, por- pornography sites, the advertising on those sites goes for so much money. And mm-hmm. in order to sell it, they, like any other business, have to have their analytics in line because people want to mm-hmm. know them. Some of the best statistics about the pornography industry, especially the online pornography industry, come directly from the pornography uh, industry itself. Pornhub, at the beginning of every January, uh, puts out just an amazing report of 
how people are consuming porn. Um, recently, uh, I don't remember who it was. I want to say it was X Hamster or X Videos. I'm not sure. But they put out a study where basically they looked at people's sexuality. And what they found, they thought that they would find um, that a lot of people were, were straight and a lot of people were gay who were engaging in porn. Um, and that, that would be that. What they found was that there was a huge section of people who identified as bisexual watching pornography. And this doesn't say that they've acted on that bisexuality. And what they found is that the people who watched the least amount of porn identify as straight or gay. And the more porn that people watch, the more apt that they are to identify as bisexual to the point where I think it reached something like, and you can look at my website because I did a big report on this, but I think it was something like 12 hours or more a week. It actually got up to something like 15, 16% of people identified as bisexual where those who looked at less than an hour a week, it was down at like 4%. And again, why is this? Um, one of the, uh, articles that talked about uh, this study that, that the porn site did mention that people who look at more pornography than others are exposed to more different ideas of what sexuality is and perhaps what, what uh, mainstream, quote-unquote, normal sexuality is. Um, and they are more apt to be open to ideas of other types of sexuality or open to ideas of being aroused by other types of sexuality. So that's really the only true statistics that I have seen that speak to um, other types of sexuality beyond heterosexuality or beyond homosexuality in that people who consume porn tend to, I guess, the word would be more liberal in, in def or more open and fluid in defining their sexuality. And I'm also thinking the second part of that question, because uh, you mentioned the analytics. And so when you are in these walled gardens, it doesn't matter if it's social media or adult related, they want to keep you on those sites. And so if you see one, if you see something, then they're going to continue to deliver something similar, and then that way the advertisers get paid by, you know, time on site. So is that also contributing? That, that business model uh, is what's making them so financially successful, but it's oh. also driving up addiction. Well, absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, it's from business model perspective, the porn industry is brilliant. They always have been, especially when it comes to new media and new technology. Uh, pornography is always on the cutting edge of new technology because we are basically animals that are looking for new ways to consume sex. And if you look at your typical uh, pornography site, you, you, know, you can watch whatever the video clip you want is, but you're going to find links to 12 other video clips surrounding that. You know, you have to expand the picture on the screen if you want to get rid of all those things because they want to keep feeding you. You know, whatever your search term is, they're going to feed you 12 of those off to the side. And hopefully while you're watching the video you wanted, you'll go on to another one and you'll go on to another one. And, you know, it's, it's the old days of surfing the web where you just keep going and going and going. And, you know, two hours have passed and you're, you're not even looking at the genre you were before. And that's part of the way addiction works as well. You know, you go to a bar, 
you start the night off having a beer or two, but towards the end of the night, you know, you're now slamming shots because you need something that's quicker, that's harder, that's more extreme. Well, that's what the internet delivers too. You know, you talk to true porn addicts who are really in their addiction, they're probably not watching men and women have, you know, quote unquote, normal sex. Um, they're probably have a lot of kinks involved. There's probably a lot of fetishes. Um, it's one of these things that, you know, you're looking to hit your dopamine receptor when you're, when you're looking at pornography, you're looking to hit those pleasure centers of your brain. And much like the gambling addict who can't bet a hundred dollars a hand anymore, he's going to bet a thousand to get that same little thrill or the alcoholic who needs to go with the tequila instead of the beer to get that thrill. Well, now you've got a guy who's, you know, looking at, you know, S&M, multicultural, you know, in public type stuff versus where he started out, man and woman in a bedroom. Um, You know, the stuff needs to get more and more extreme, more different from, you know, his normal life, more different from his normal sexual life, which is something that I'm often asked by women who contact me is that, you know, I caught him looking at gay pornography or he's only looking at pornography that's Asian women um, or this or that. Does that mean that he's gay or that he he secretly wants an Asian wife or anything like that? And it's no, there is no connection between um, what somebody watches on a screen and what they actually want in real life. Um, there's the, the, the statistic I saw recently was something like uh, of porn addicts, 60% have regularly watched gay pornography. That doesn't mean that 60% of porn addicts are gay. It just means that they need something else to see to get that same rush that they got before. And usually there's some kind of forbidden aspect, some kind of taboo aspect, and they find that in uh, gay pornography or in uh, transgender pornography, transsexual pornography. Um, that's why some of those, you look at the most popular genres of pornography when Pornhub or these other places put out their, their list. And I think somebody who just casually looks at porn once in a while on a computer would be like, oh, my God, who is looking at this stuff? Because it's very extreme stuff that falls outside the norm for most of our vanilla sex lives that we have. It's just that these people need to take it to a higher degree. And the only place they can do that is online with with a lot of these sites. What I I found interesting was I I like a lot of comedy. So I watched the Joe Rogan channel and he had another comedian, female Wendy Cummings on, and they were looking at search history based off of age group. And so like 18 to 34, we're looking at something different. And then older than that, we're looking at something different. And one niche that they found that was growing was, was grandmothers. So you, you're like yeah. on the surface, how could this happen? And like you just said, it's that dopamine, dopamine receptor. And no, you don't now want grandmothers. It's just, uh, uh, I guess that's just getting it for you at that time. Is that what you're seeing? Ab- absolutely. And there are a lot of men who – um, report that they actually get turned on by being repulsed 
I mean, you look at any time you're on a porn site, look at the, you know, 200 different genres they have. And some of them, it's just like, that's just gross. Or that one is just really gross sounding. Well, there are, you know, and then if you like grannies, you know, enjoy them. But to me, that's, that's gross. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are guys who, you know, are, are actually repulsed by that. And in being repulsed are turned on because they have, fried their dopamine receptors to the point that pleasure doesn't give them pleasure. The only way they can feel something different is to be revulsed. Mm. Wow. And that's pretty messed up when you think about it. Well, yeah, I mean, because that's my next question, because, uh, you know, one of the things on your site, you're talking about looking for a middle ground between doing nothing and the cost of professional therapy where where is that line? Is it a moving target? How do you determine that you need professional therapy? If you think you have a problem, and uh, what you're talking about is a service I offer on my website, where a lot and a lot of women push their husband towards this um, with me, is where you know I'm upfront. I am not a trained professional. I am not an expert, but I've been there. And I can have a conversation with you. I can have a conversation that is safe. I'm not going to, you know, you can tell me you look at anything. I don't care. Uh, and I'm not going to judge, you know. And that doesn't happen a lot for a lot of people who feel bad about their pornography use and feel shame and, and feel like, you know, they can't tell anybody that they look at grandmother porn um, because they're afraid of what the reaction is going to be. A lot of times I'll have one or two lengthy conversations with these men. And I look at it as my job as explaining to them that this is okay. They are not weird. Uh, Depending on where they are in their addiction, they may be very sick. They may be on their way to being very sick. Um, And they need to, you know, almost always get some professional therapy to find out where things are because addiction is not about the behavior or the substance. Addiction is a symptom of something bigger. And with pornography addiction, with sex addiction, depending on which study you look at, uh, between 90 and 94% of addicts in this area have some kind of childhood trauma that's unresolved. Uh, a lot of the time, yes, it is sexual, but a lot of the time it's just mental or it's physical. There's some kind of trauma that hasn't been worked through. There's some kind of trauma that's essentially blocking them and has been blocking them uh, for you know years, sometimes decades. And uh, they just need to hear this. And oftentimes their wife is not the right person to deliver the message because she's too emotionally invested in it. She's going through her own stuff. Um, when I talk to a lot, sometimes a, a woman will want to, uh, who has an addict husband who's not interested in getting help, but she doesn't want to leave him. So she wants to know how to handle things. And, you know, we talk about betrayal trauma that she needs to take care of herself. She needs to go to therapy. She needs to learn how to take, how to have self care because I, I, you know, I believe nobody should live any way they don't want to. But if you're going to live in that situation, you know, number one, buckle up because it's going to be a rough ride. 
but learn how to take care of yourself properly. Um, and that, that's really what I do through, through my site, um, through that advising service, is just have conversations where people don't have to feel judged, don't have to feel shame. Once I can establish that, you know, things are safe, you can tell me whatever you want, I'll tell you some of my stories, and uh, I'll tell you about how I reached a point that I'm now almost six years sober from pornography. Um, and, and if I can do it after 20, 25 years of being an addict and of being so publicly shamed because it led to a point that I talked to a teenager online, um, if I can get there, anybody can get there. So, you know, these other guys have to nip it in the bud. And I think, uh, I'm almost the guy who their wives bring them to as a warning. You know, uh, I'm not a stereotypical porn addict in their eyes. I was the professional. I was the father. I had a great life, um, much like a lot of these guys do. And they think they can never be an addict because they have a great life. They're married. You know, porn addicts are gross people. Porn addicts are, you know, 19-year-old guys who've never kissed a girl in real life. Um, and that's not true. I met, I've met every type of person who's a pornography addict, uh, men, women, you know, smart, dumb, rich, poor. It, it doesn't matter the nationality. It doesn't matter the age. Anybody can be a porn addict. And I just try to get that across to these guys that, uh, you know, I try to be uh, that halfway point between doing nothing and going to therapy. You know, let's at least have a conversation about this because most of these guys have never had a conversation about this before. It, uh, it also makes me think of the 80s, and in the 80s, they had that scared straight program where they would send the kids to, like, a jail for boot camp and, you know, scared straight so they wouldn't go. And like you were saying, you're hitting these dopamine, so at some point, an addict may not even realize or even look at these people as real human flesh, you know. And so are there opportunities? Because you see a lot of uh, the industry where it's ex- exploitative, you said 100% of it is objectifying another person. And so that person that's, in, that's being filmed may be undergoing their own unresolved childhood trauma. Is there any way to kind of bridge the gap to have, you know, uh, the addict talk to the actor? I'm sure that there is. Um, There are some organizations out there, like Triple X Church is a big one, where they have a lot of former porn industry people working for them who are now anti-porn. my my only issue with with this argument is that it's been made for years and years and years and years. People have been trying to get rid of pornography long before the internet existed. Uh, as long as there have been, you know, uh, radical groups, as long as there have been feminist groups, there have been anti-pornography groups. And one of the arguments they've always made is, oh my God, the workers are in horrible conditions. The you know these people are doing things they don't want to do. These People have other problems and need the money. And all of this may be true, but I think that we've been proved it's been proven over the decades that this argument has not stopped anybody from consuming pornography. And I don't think that this argument is going to stop people from consuming pornography because 
walk into any chain restaurant, like, you know, walk into a TGI Fridays or a Buffalo Wild Wings and go into the kitchen and you're going to find plenty of people who hate their job and feel like they have to be there. Uh, you're going to find people who go home and self-medicate with drugs and with alcohol. You know, go into any inner city area where they have problems with drugs and alcohol or abuse and that kind of stuff. The porn industry doesn't have the market cornered on unhappy employees. There are unhappy employees everywhere. And I don't think that that argument and the energy that's put into that argument is one that works because the industry is just growing. The consumers to the industry are just growing. And I think everybody sort of understands that uh, a lot of the people involved in pornography would rather be doing something else. But again, it doesn't stop them because they stop viewing them as people. Um, and they're viewed as objects because, let's be honest, most of us don't know porn stars. Uh, most of us don't know people who uh, get into that kind of industry. Maybe we knew a stripper an hour, you know, when we were younger um, or heard about somebody who we knew that was a stripper. And some of us, you know, went to strip clubs and, and might have seen this stuff up close, but it's another world. And when you see, you know, three women and two men going at it on the side of a hill in California, you know, at a house that, you know, you'd never be able to afford, it really takes away the reality. It's all fantasy. And if it's all fantasy, how can you see these people as real people? Mm -hmm. Excellent point. Excellent point. Uh, I do want to ask you, since we are in December and it's the holiday season, uh, the, the bad side that a lot of people don't talk about is from December to a, right before the beginning of spring, there's a high level of people deciding that they can't take it anymore. And you had a blog post that I thought was very riveting, and there's always a light at the end of the tunnel, but there was something that just seemed to grab you that day, yet you're still here at this podcast today to talk about it. I'd like for you to share that podcast that I, I mean, the uh, blog post that I was talking about and just let people know that's listening to this, that there's resources like you and others out there that there's always light at the end of the tunnel. Well, absolutely. I mean, this, like I said, I, one of my big messages that I try to spread is that there is no stereotypical porn addict. Um, anybody can be one uh, and you don't, you don't need to feel shame from it. Um, if you're a sick person, if you are an ill person who has an addiction, um, I have seen so many people through uh, the support groups that I've been part of, both 12 steps and then just, you know, men getting together. Um, and I've, you know, seen this in rehabs and, and anybody can come back from this. Uh, I, there was one time where I uh, almost uh, killed myself. I was actually standing in my garage, looking up at the beams, trying to figure out if they would hold me and if the rope would hold me. And I, this was on Christmas night, I think 2012. Um, and I don't think that if the car had not been in the garage, I probably wouldn't be here. Um, it, it, I don't know what came over me. I really don't know what came over me. Um, uh, it was, it was just 
it hit me on Christmas night uh, after everybody had gone to bed that it was a calm, warm feeling that I just had decided that this was I, 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 I'd been through too much and I was going to end it. And it just made sense. And I didn't even question it. And I didn't question how I was going to do it. I knew exactly how I was going to do it. I got to the garage. I saw the car there and I realized I'd have to open the garage door and move the car out and then I'd have to shut the garage again. And all of that noise would wake up my, my wife and my kids. And something snapped me out of it. And I look back at that day, and I've never felt that again. I went through all of my legal problems. I went through jail. Um, I have had, you know, 95% of the uh, relationships or casual relationships that I had with people in my community have been destroyed. My life has forever been changed, but I've never been back in that spot. And I think about that spot often. Had the car not been in the garage, what would have happened? Because... I have had so many wonderful experiences and met so many wonderful people. And I think I've helped a lot of people and I think I've had quality experiences. Um, I, I don't know what caused that mental break and I don't know what causes mental breaks in other people. I don't know why people go into shopping centers and shoot them up. And I don't, I don't know why these horrible things in our world happen. If you can somehow, if you're coming towards one of these, if you're in one of these, if you can just seize upon a moment of clarity and turn it around. And one of the things that a uh, uh, counselor at my first rehab suggested to me, um, when you're faced with something tough, whether it's a trigger or somebody's trying to get you to use whatever it might be, whether it's alcohol or, or something like, or drugs or porn or whatever, um, just get up and go sit over there. And that just means remove yourself from the situation. Get up and go sit over there. If you go sit over there and you're still feeling this way, get up and go sit over there and just keep moving until you feel differently. And that's been my mantra since, uh, since that happened or since I've, I came out of that rehab. And despite the fact that so much rough negative stuff has happened to me um, over the past several years. Um, when it gets rough, I just, you know, get up and go sit over there, move around and recognize that you have a future and you may not understand what that future is for right now. It's kind of like if you are in a relationship and you break up with someone and you think that that was the person for you and you don't know, you know, why would God or whatever want this to end? And then you fast forward 10 years and you're with somebody who you love even more and you have a kid that you love more than anything. And you look back to that relationship and you think, huh, if that hadn't ended, I would have never met this person. I would have never had this child. I may have had a completely different life. Things tend to work out if you let them. And if you try to have a positive attitude and if you try to stay out of trouble, um, sometimes that's easier said than done. And when you need help, ask for it. Just, just ask for it. People love to help other people. That's one of the naturally wonderful things about humans is we love to help each other. Um, you know, I charge a few dollars for my advising thing uh, with the uh, pornography conversations. Um, I probably give far more away for free than I ever charge. People want to help. Um, and 
you don't have to find yourself alone. You don't have to find yourself in a situation where you're holding a length of rope in a garage, looking up at a beam, wondering if it's going to support you. Um, there's always other options out there, and I promise you the future does get better. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest takeaway because you don't know the impact that you have. You had this first book, and then a lot of women and uh, girlfriends and wives had come out, and I'm sure you didn't imagine that. And so now you have these audiences that continue to grow, and we are at the top of the hour. So I'd love for you to to mention your websites, social media, so people listening to this podcast could get in touch with you um, to feel that they're not going at it alone, and they have someone that's kind of been in their place and have transcended that place. Yeah, my my, uh, website is recoveringpornaddict.com. And uh, you'll find I, I just about every day write a new article on there. It might be about recovery. It might be a, a story of, you know, back in my addiction. It might just be my take on something going on in the world. Um, but every day it's updated. There's a great page of resources. If you want to get help, maybe you start with rehab. Maybe you start with therapy. Maybe you just start with watching online 12-step meetings. There are so many ways that you can just dip your toe into the pool and start to experience help. And there's a huge list of them on that resources page. I have a list of all of the podcasts and radio shows I've done. So if you want to hear more stories, um, and you can go listen to those. Uh, you know, I try to do, and again, there are, there were links to, you know, purchase my books. Um, you can go on Amazon directly and purchase them as well. Um, I'm very accessible through the site. I will always make time to talk to people, um, whether they're, they're an addict or a loved one of an addict or, you know, just need some kind of opinion on something. Um, I really feel like my calling now is to share as much information about pornography addiction as possible. And like I said, I'm never going to end it. I'm never going to stop the pornography uh, industry. But I think if we can all move forward a little bit more educated about pornography addiction, um, that the world can be a better, safer place. Absolutely. Well, you have just been tuned to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza and Joshua Shea. It was a pleasure. Thanks for being a resource, and let, let's keep this going, man. Absolutely. Thank you again so much for giving me the time to uh, talk to your audience. It's always very appreciated when I can do that. Absolutely. Cheers, and happy holidays to you. Thank you. You too.